And they're not like goody two-shoes superheroes. They're people who like had their eyes gouged out <laughs> and they're, you know, and they were burnt at stakes and they, they were starved for years and then turned into a dove. I'm Anne McNamee-Keels. And I'm Stephanie Shavera. And this is Lapsed. A podcast about growing up Catholic. Today, I have a very special episode that I am sharing with the listeners and with Steph uh, because I did an interview. Let's keep, it a, let's keep it a secret and talk about other things first. Great. <laughs> well, how was your holiday, Anne? Uh, my holiday was good. It was pretty low-key because of this thing called COVID that is raging. Which we both got in our household. Oh no. On Christmas day, we tested positive a gift. Oh my gosh. To all of us. How are you feeling? I'm fine. The first day was a little rough. I was more scared than anything, but first night was rough. I was a little out of commission, but it was mostly like a bad cold. Yeah. Thank goodness I was vaccinated. Yay. Yay for vaccination. Mm-hmm. Hopefully someone will listen to this episode like a year from now. I, I don't know. I'm like 10 years from now. One day be like, oh, remember that? It's all over now. That's what oh, we're all hoping can't for. Can't wait for that moment. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So we basically didn't have a holiday. I'm sorry. <laughs> we were just like, oh, that was fun. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we kept things very small for, for COVID reasons because right. I have Especially I have one kid who's not old enough to be vaccinated yet. Right. So we all tested and then just got together with my family of origin for a little while. My husband's sister was in town with her three kids and we were supposed to spend Christmas with them. And so I didn't test until Christmas afternoon. So we thought we would see them Christmas morning. We'd go over to his parents' house and see them open gifts. But we got a text at 6 30 from his sister saying don't bother the kids woke up in the middle of the night and opened everything (laughs) i mean that's kind of amazing i've never heard of a child doing this i was in utter shock i was like did they what how what how's no one ever done this before and now i was like oh well okay so the any like child experience you're going to have we didn't have that and then we tested positive and then it was like well (laughs) there goes christmas you know it was kind of a weird christmas for everybody it was yeah and then new year's i think i was asleep by 10 we played a an escape room board game so that was fun it's a very covid holiday season right now it really was Uh, and now yeah just continuing to stay inside because it's 19 degrees where I live. Oh, it's nine degrees where I live. Oh, you've been. I, I don't miss those winters. <laughs> uh, but it's been very mild here and we got snow. So the kids have been enjoying Aww, that. So. That's nice. Just, you know, you know, it's not a bad time to be stuck in the house. No, it's not. No, it's not. Well, I don't want to spend too much time on Catholicism in the news because I want to hear all about your interview. Mm-hmm. But I had to share this with you. Have you heard um, the news from your homeland? I don't think so. I don't know which homeland. I'm assuming either Poland or Ireland. I've heard nothing. Poland, specifically. Okay. All right. The, the bishops in Poland got together 
and they gave special permission for the Catholics to eat meat on New Year's Eve because it fell on a Friday. (laughs) Special dispensation. We love it. Exactly what it says. There's a website called notesfrompoland.com, which I just feel like you need to start. Wait, so these are people who are still very hardcore and still don't eat meat on any Friday? Right. Yeah. And so they even got special permission because we all know pork is very important to the New Year's in the Slavic traditions. No. They also said they're hoping that this special dispensation makes it even more special to abstain from meat on Fridays moving forward. So they're hoping this really solidifies the fish. (laughs) I didn't realize people were still still doing that. Oh, yeah. Because didn't that used to be a thing and then after Vatican II, it was like just during Lent, right? That's how my family operates. Around here, the fried fish Fridays are a huge thing. People go church to church to church, but it's only on Lent for the most part. I know a couple hardcores. Hardcore, do it all the time. Listen, uh, I'm a pescatarian, so I'm a vegetarian. I only eat fish. Fridays of Lent at my high school were like the only time that I bought lunch because I was like, yes, this is my season. This is it. (laughs) Every day is is Friday of Lent for me. So, and also used people used to say that when I would say I'm a vegetarian, but I eat fish. A lot of people like in high school would say like, oh, that's, that's, you can do that. Cause like Jesus ate fish. And I was Jesus like, I don't, yeah, probably, but he probably also ate like chicken. And why is that? That's not my reasoning. Probably ate whatever he could eat. I mean, he didn't eat pork. Clearly he was a right. nice Jewish boy, but anywho. Oh, good to know. Thanks, Poland. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So Steph, I'm very excited to share this with you. Yeah. I interviewed Monica Ducks. Monica is a writer, commentator, and a columnist for The Age, which is an Australian publication, which might be why you are less familiar here. She was a founding board member of the Stella Prize and the Feminist Writers Festival. In a former life, Monica researched history at the University of Melbourne, working at Melbourne University Publishing and on the Monthly Magazine. She's an author of the book we're we're about to discuss, um, and also Things I Didn't Expect When I Was Expecting, a co-author of The Great Feminist Denial and editor of the anthology Mother Morphosis. Ooh. I know. And Monica, she lives in Melbourne, Australia, with her family. Uh, and the reason I interviewed her is because she her most recent book is a book called Lapsed. Dun, dun, dun. And it is all about being a lapsed Catholic. Yay. Yeah. So this was a very funny thing where we did not discover that this book existed until after we started the podcast. It was wonderful talking with her. I felt, you know, you and I talked about on our first episode this feeling that when you talk to another lapsed Catholic where you have this feeling of like, oh my gosh, we speak the same language. Mm-hmm. It was that, it feels like times a million. Aww. Because not only are we both lapsed Catholic, but we're both lapsed Catholics who have now taken on a project of diving into our own lapsed Catholicism. Mm-hmm. There are so many things in the book and so many things talking with her where it was like, oh yeah, that's We've totally talked about that. That's totally a thing we have grappled with. Oh, wow. I think you and I have talked about what a weird, kind of what a weird thing it is to have taken this on and dedicate all this headspace to thinking about Catholicism. I think we like left. (laughs) (laughs) And also like becoming that person that people go to with their Catholic stories. and Right. 
And she also is has had this experience and then some because she spent years with this material. Oh, wow. Working on an entire book. And the book is really both a memoir and her personal experience and then really research heavy. She's a historian. She's really looking at and, and a journalist. So she's really looking at Love it. the history of the Catholic Church and reporting the heck out of it. So it was a fascinating read. I recommend it to everyone. So for those who might be now inspired to read the book, I just started myself. It, it, did your interview contain spoilers? Should people, if they want to read the book? <laughs> oh, that's a good question. Uh, nothing. I don't think there's anything too extreme. No. Okay. Great. So if folks want to read Lapsed or listen to the audiobook, I think it's available in both formats. Currently, it is available on Amazon. I didn't find it in any more local um, U.S. bookstores. It probably is available other places globally. And if you have a local bookstore you love that doesn't carry it, you could ask them to carry it. Uh, so Lapsed by Monica Dux. Great. Really excited to have you listen to this interview stuff. I can't wait. Thanks, Anne. Well, thank you so much for making this happen and for joining me. I really appreciate it. Oh, no, it's a pleasure. I, I was excited by your podcast because it um, speaks to me. <laughs> <laughs> it was so funny. So Stephanie and I started this podcast in the midst of the pandemic, and we decided what we wanted to name it. And I thought I'd done my due diligence, although I think I was looking really at podcasts to make sure no one else had the title or really the exact content we had, and I wasn't finding it. But I really searched the title, I thought. And then one day I was on our social media, and I think I clicked like hashtag Laps Catholic, and your book came up, and I was like, oh my goodness. And we had even, I don't remember if this is before or after, we had posted our communion pictures and your, yeah. <laughs> the friend of your book is your communion picture. And so I was like, oh, oh my goodness, who is this person? No, well, but I mean, that's the thing with laps, because I spent years thinking about this book. I mean, I, I spent years thinking about what it was to be a lapsed Catholic, but I never used to really quite call myself a lapsed Catholic. I would call myself lots of different things. And I think if you ask people who were once Catholic, but have a bit of a fraught relationship with their Catholic childhood, or they're not quite sure how to call themselves, or they don't go to mass anymore, you know, all of those, that that was the one thing that really struck me is that I think that former Catholics or lapsed Catholics or, you know, recovering Catholics or right. all the different, you know, that broad community has a real problem with how what we call ourselves and mm -hmm. that really yeah that made me realize that I think that's because we have some sort of unfinished relationship with the church in lots of different ways and so lapsed I came around when I was pitching the book I think my agent or something said call it lapsed and I thought yeah I've just got to do that but even then I sometimes when I say to people yeah I'm a lapsed Catholic but I'm not quite but let me explain what that means. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so it is a, but I, I think it's a good umbrella term because it used to be a bit of an insult actually, but now it's like we could reclaim it with pride. Right. <laughs> That's a great point. Uh, yeah. I think when Stephanie and I were even talking about the term and I, I think we, we talked about a lot of the things that you, I think, say in your book is that this question of like who decided we're lapsed Catholics and it feels like it's the church because it's this thing of still counting everyone who's been baptized as a Catholic. Yeah, and that connection is they consider it still there, yeah, even if we right. don't. Mm. Right. But no, I, that's what I, I, when I started researching the book, I spent a tremendous amount of time doing a whole. Oh, no. Oh, okay. Sorry. Can you just repeat what you just said? Because you, 
for some reason in my headphones you cut out a second but it might have recorded i think this is god that we're not meant to communicate uh, because um it was so i with the church i mean okay so we consider ourselves no longer a part of the church but we still have this problematic relationship i mean and that was mm-hmm. one of the things i realized that you know the church says there's but 1.2 1.3 billion catholics and they're counting all these people who actually don't go to mass anymore, who may not believe in God, who who may have moved to another religion, but they the church will still consider you Catholic. And there are more lapsed Catholics than there are actual practicing Catholics today. It's like we're we're a huge congregation if we all sort of joined up together. But I was really fascinated initially with the idea that the church doesn't stop considering you Catholic ever. You know, baptism Mm -hmm. is irrevocable. I mean, baptism for Christians is irrevocable in general. But for Catholics, I interviewed a whole lot of canon lawyers and I looked into all this research and it was really fascinating to to see that, you know, if I was there saying, I don't want to be Catholic anymore, it was like the church would say, well, you are still one of us. And and that and there's been so many attempts by a lot of people in, in recent decades, particularly with child abuse revelations coming out for people to separate formally from the church and although you can do that in lots of different ways you're still considered catholic by the vatican and i mean and that's why it's sort of funny to think oh henry the eighth he was still a catholic martin luther he was still a catholic <laughs> like these people as, as you know according to the church and so of course yeah. you know you can say oh it doesn't matter you can walk away but it does matter to us i think and i think that relationship it is it's still quite dynamic and yeah, there's a lot of fishes in that. And then that just goes back to, yeah, what do we call ourselves and who are we? That was actually the question that Stephanie and I started out with too. And and I had um, an article by, I believe an Australian writer who had tried to become uncatholic at the very beginning of the show. When I announced to Stephanie that she was still Catholic, she didn't know. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> but something you point out in the book, I had really been thinking it from kind of a personal standpoint, but something you point out in your book, which I think is so important that the political implications, right? That when a bishop is writing and saying, I represent this diocese of however many, you know, thousand million Catholics that really they're counting, you know, if if it's a bishop, like in the Chicago Archdiocese, that they're counting me. Yeah. (laughs) And they're using me sort of as their pawn, which I had, had not considered. No. And I mean, it's interesting that, I mean, the church individual dioceses and and parishes count Catholics differently throughout the world. So mm. there's not just one system. Mm-hmm. In terms of the woo-woo part of, of the church, like in canon law, a baptism makes you a Catholic, full stop. And so, yeah, that that's sort of set in, in godlike stone. But when it comes to how they, they do the account keeping, and there's some very interesting studies that were done, um, a, a guy called um, Hornbeck in, in the US looking at the way that a professor, sorry, not a guy, that's so disrespectful. No, that's <laughs> a professor, he's actually a professor. But he looked at the way that in America that Catholic, you know, numbers were being used or misused but for things that the majority of Catholics would not um, agree about. And and I think this happens in – we've seen this happen in Australia. We had a, a few years ago this terrible debate about marriage equality and uh, some of the Catholic Church was coming forward and certain, you know, one of the archbishops and, and saying, oh, it's, um, you know, marriage should only ever be between a man and a woman and we represent this many people. And, of course, that's 
uh, not true because the vast majority of Catholics, if you, I mean, if you look at something like contraception, which is fascinating because the statistics on contraception, the use of contraception by Catholics and non-Catholics, including practising Catholics, is pretty much the same. You know, mm-hmm. a majority of Catholics do use contraception, but they're not meant right. to. Yeah, I mean, they can use their conscience and there's all these other flourishes to law. So I think that sense of, you know, people will sometimes say to Catholics like me, former Catholics who feel conflicted about the church, oh, well, you just walk away. You just don't go to mass anymore. What does it matter? And Mm -hmm. it's sort of like it does matter. It does matter on on the sense of that the Catholic church is very large, it's very powerful, it's very wealthy, and it's said some things that are really repugnant and it's done some terrible things. But then there's the other thing I think about being a lapsed Catholic and this was also why I wanted to write the book. I didn't just want to write a book going, oh, there's these bad things and I'm so angry. I also thought I am still so Catholic and I feel that the childhood I had made me and it wasn't all good. Some of it was bad, but some of it was really beautiful. And and I've never quite been able to have those two parts and and, and join them together in a way that felt like I'd made peace with it. And I think that's quite a common experience for a lot of former Catholics or lapsed Catholics that we still feel a relationship and so I yeah I wrote the book I thought I wanted to figure out well why why is that and what are the things and then if you can understand that a bit better what can you do about it if the church won't let you go what can you do for yourself to understand your own relationship as a lapsed Catholic yeah, it's very funny to hear. I mean, you wrote the book, obviously, before we started the podcast. But I have yeah. to tell you, it's fascinating. I mean, starting the podcast, I think I felt similarly. This is a question. I had I had the podcast in my head for at least a year before I brought it to Stephanie and said, is this something yeah. you'd be interested in? Right. There's a lot of the same questions. And then I just didn't think about I didn't think about how much of my brain and my time would then be taking up, like sort of excavating my own yeah. Catholic upbringing. You know, you think, I, oh, and we're going to do this project and won't this be interesting? We'll reach this interesting audience. And then you're like, oh, this is really, this is really digging up some stuff. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and yeah. it's so funny reading your book because it's so, so much of the things we touched on. Like, I feel like you're, yeah. and so I'm like, oh, it's like she's in the room when we were having this conversation. <laughs> but um, that, that you sort of went through a lot of, the same points that we, I think, brought up. I think so much of what it is to grow up Catholic is that you do a lot of ritual and you say a lot of words. You know, I can still recite prayers that, mm-hmm. you know, I hadn't spoken for decades. And and you wear, you, you dress up as a bride at the or at least for me, I was seven. And then we all have these photographs. Like, same, yeah. yeah, so you have these, these really intense, quite all-encompassing experiences of an understanding of your place in the world. And yet so much of what you're saying and doing and being told and sort of processing doesn't go much deeper than that. And so I think, yeah, when I wrote the book, I was like, well, who was Mary? Like she she really haunted my teenage years because my mother was really into Our Lady and still is. Mm-hmm. She doesn't quite believe in Jesus, but she believes in Our Lady. Very Catholic, right? Yeah, so Catholic. And I was like, oh, Mary. And I still, even though I I now will consider myself an atheist, I don't believe in God, I I still felt like Mary was quite real. And then so Mm -hmm. in the book I thought, well, who is she? Research Mary. Oh, she's she's not even really real. (laughs) She's Mm -hmm. sort of fan fiction for the church. And Jesus, you know, it was this thing I've had when I was researching the book over many years and I would talk to people about it, people would 
constantly say to me, and people who don't even believe in God would say, oh, but Jesus was a great guy. You know, it was that King Missile song. He was a real cool dude. And I thought, well, is he? And then I researched that and I was like, no, I don't think he was. I mean, he's probably quite nice. You know, he's an okay fella, but he's not like this every man of, of goodness. And so, yeah, so that was sort of a lot of, and I can see what you're saying there with your podcast. And it's like when you start scratching a little bit, it's really fascinating if you've been completely embedded in this world without knowing these things. Right. Well, because as Stephanie and I keep pointing out, Catholics don't spend much time with the Bible. No. dangerous talking about biblical figures we don't we're we're given we're given kind of a decontextualized version and some quotes and some things pulled from it but the nice parts the nice right exactly or or the parts that make you feel some guilt and then but you're told that that's that's what you're supposed to feel yeah but even the gospels like I mean I didn't know it was funny because I mean I'm educated and I spent I've written a few books and I've been around and I think oh I know about the world and and I was brought up Catholic and then when I was writing the book these really basic things I was like well how were all the gospels oh they weren't written during the time of Jesus oh there's a history I, I found it really hard to stop researching because I found all these the more I read, the more, uh, you know, fantastical it seemed, but also the more it made me see that, oh, yeah, it's we Catholics, being brought up Catholic is, it's a very particular kind of narrative. Yeah. And, but there's such a, a depth of history. There are, there is a few thousand years and yeah. And not really understanding the Bible and where it comes from it just seems, I thought, wow, it's amazing that I, I, I never thought to ask. <laughs> yeah, it it is so many things that you don't think to ask, or you're just mm. you, something I I keep falling back on, and I I saw this in your book too. This I, everything is kind of given the same weight, you know, like yeah. Jesus, Mary, the saints, Joseph, holy water is change actually changes, and 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 all of yeah. it's given the same weight, and you don't you just kind of assume it's probably all in the Bible <laughs> yes. know, as a child. And no one tells you. No one says, oh, you know, because they started removing a few saints. <laughs> I guess like St. Christopher, oh. not a real person. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. There's a few that you can find a list of them. They're all. And I mean, that's funny because you go, oh, so all those years are wearing a St. Christopher medal and he's actually recognized by the church, I think, to be mythical. And you know, but at the same time, the church then kind of comes around this by saying, but it's sort of an inspiration. He represents something. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, everything I found in my childhood, everything can be massaged into that way. But I, I think that's what belief is too. Like I, mm-hmm. I, I think writing lapsed and researching the Catholic church, I had a lot of very conflicted feelings about the church. I was very angry at the church and the church has committed such abominations against mm-hmm. children and people I, who I've loved, you know, and I write about that in the book. But, you know, at the same time, I thought I didn't want to say it's just stupid, you know, and someone who doesn't believe in God. And I think, oh, because when you do believe in something that is unseen and that is about your existence, that idea of faith and how you process that, I think, of course, people massage that. Of course, I can understand why the people who taught me were able to say that's a mystery. You know, Catholics are big mm-hmm. on mysteries. And and why that's actually quite, in some ways, works really well because everything can be explained away as just a mystery, you know. Yeah. I think Catholics do that better than a lot of Christian denominations. <laughs> well, there's a lot more. I mean, I, with all the, I don't know, the incense and the, you know, the mm. all the pomp and circumstance kind of, I think it does make it feel. Yeah. And previous to 
Vatican II, you know, we've talked about like Latin mass. I mean, that yeah. must have felt just, I was forced to sit through a couple Latin masses as a child. I haven't been to one in a long time, but yeah. just sitting and listening to something that you, you don't even understand. I mean, yeah. that level of, you know, you literally don't understand the words. Um, well, and, and Latin masses are fascinating now because there's been a bit of a backlash where a lot of young mm-hmm. people will go to Latin masses and, you know, I can, I can see the appeal because it's, it's sort of otherworldly. And I mean, that was one of the things that, you know, I talked about in the book that Catholics, uh, you know, and this is sort of recognise that Catholics are sort of magical. We live in this mystical world and we, we have the stories, you know, Luther threw out a lot of the good stuff. But so when you, you grow up with these pretty much superheroes and, and they're not like goody two-shoes superheroes, they're, they're people who like had their eyes gouged out and they're, you know, and they were burnt at stakes and they, they, you know, they were starved for years and then turned into a dove after they were bludgeoned to death. And so it's pretty extreme. Yeah. And so on one way, it's sort of funny because I, I look back and think, oh my God, like these were the people I thought were great. And on the other hand, I think it's pretty cool stuff for a kid because it's big. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's, it's not like, it's not pick up your litter. I mean, I, I'm not going to like pull out a book with the saints and read about all these martyrs to my seven year old, but I feel like he would probably <laughs> be into it. Might give him nightmares, but I think he would be a fan. That's what I mean. The first time, and of course, the book, my book started with my daughter deciding she wanted to be Catholic, right. and she didn't know because I'd never taught her any of this stuff. There was a moment, and she would have been about six or seven, where she was in bed. And she said, "I realized she didn't know she had a crucifix that she bought in Rome, or my my husband had bought her." Uh, yeah it was a very awkward moment for me but so she had this crucifix and it was like she just saw it as this object and then she was like so what ex- exactly happened she asked me one night and so I sat down I was like well you know like Jesus so they they stuck a, a, a sword you know a spear into his side and water came out and then they they kind of nailed him to a cross and they hung him there and there was blood. And I I was telling her this as a Catholic, you know, it's like good old Jesus. And right. her eyes. And I thought, oh, my God, I'm scaring her because she's mm-hmm. never heard this. And, like, this, these tales are, you know, R-rated. <laughs> it's like yeah. a milk. Yeah, yeah. But when you – it's funny to think it's a child that each week this was what we were told. We were told and you were looking at. I mean, every yes. Sunday just looking at this image of this – body this mostly naked body of Jesus absolutely with blood coming out like larger than life right yeah. oftentimes depending on what church you're at yeah and being told to love him love him <laughs> yeah where it, and it's like the scariest thing right but we don't oh. you don't think about it as a child you're not scared I mean I don't remember being scared I remember that being a really common and there were crucifixes in all my classrooms and it was just normal it all just became yeah and I mean I think there's a point in my book where I talk about a friend of mine who wasn't brought up with religion and how she her son um wasn't thriving at the the public school and so she went and spoke to Catholic school about moving him there and her experience was walking down this hallway and suddenly looking at all the art and she said I just suddenly thought oh my god there's like blood dripping on the walls there's all this blood dripping and she said I look closer and it's like oh it's Jesus and there's five-year-old just like during this really violent and I I used to love I used to love drawing Jesus and his wounds yeah you'd do him and you'd so 
it's it is it's, it's a red it's, crayon and yeah. the red crayon yeah and and knowing you know that the, the spear in the side was quite significant I think that always bothered me because that seemed like I mean that's really pushing I mean that's like Mel Gibson's um passion of, of mm. the Christ is a, a fascinating film in a way because I think I only saw that a couple of years ago actually when I was doing the book and I did think I saw captures that going <laughs> for all it's you know as, as Jesus is being violently flayed in that in the most sort of it's almost fetishized you know this violence mm-hmm. but it's like oh yeah that was actually that was it really so yeah and I I mean we actually we haven't talked about like stations of the cross yet in, in the show that hasn't been when we've yes you that should that's fast. we will I think. yeah um you're just making me think about it but you know because there's things as an adult so I I don't know exactly how I identified as a lapsed Catholic my family and I belong to a very lefty Methodist church in large part I was drawn for the political the idea of this far leftist kind of political agenda they appeared to have as much as a church can have in the U.S. because yeah they're supposed to be apolitical but they rarely are yeah <laughs> kind of mixed with Christianity I was like what what's happening here so I you know we we are members of this church my my seven-year-old has told me he's not a uh, he doesn't believe in Jesus so that's the end he's he's an animist it sounds like oh good on him um, so reading about your your daughter, it made me think of um, yeah these conversations that we're having. Well, and I suppose you create that space for your child, don't you? Because I, I was really confronted. I mean, when I was a, a child, I was told this is the way it is. And my dad mm-hmm. not being Catholic, so he was an Anglican. And that sort of amplified the Catholicism in my life because I had a real, it was like there was a sectarian um, world I was living in <clears throat> because yeah but but yeah so I my I just it was that way and then I went to Catholic school in primary school Catholic school in high school it was the idea of questioning fundamentally questioning faith was a big no-no I, and you know there are lots of terrible things that happened in my high school as I was old enough to see them happening you know there was a teacher I remember who told me later she was a really lovely she was my English teacher and she'd said she married a man who was a divorcee and she had been told by the head nun that, you know, she could lose her job if this was made public. So, you know, there were all these these sort of things. You just couldn't question it. And so when you have kids, mm-hmm. and this is where it was, so my daughter, of course, lapsed my book, starts with the, her discovering Jesus in Rome. And so, right. yeah, the age of six, she suddenly, having had no religion, she decides she wants religion. And I felt very strongly, and I'm sure it's the same with you, with your son, that sense of having been brought up being told there is this only way I didn't want to say to her and I had been saying up to the age of six there are many ways to you know many ways mm-hmm. people believe right. and we respect well, them as people believe lots of different right yeah and as long as it doesn't yeah. hurt people you know there's some beliefs we don't agree with but you have to find your own you know we, you have to find your own meaning in life like we are all seeking meaning and all so that's really important and that was really important to me as a parent but to suddenly have my daughter say but it's the Catholic um I was like no you can't be Catholic and then I thought that's the one that you can't do that's that's the only one let's let's not include this and then and then of course luckily for my own ability to cope with it was um yeah she found a a religion briefly well she set up what she calls it a cult 
about ducks flapping. At the moment, she's Wiccan, so she seems to have settled into that, and that's fine. But um, who knows? We had a previous guest, Kay Creasel, who was is wonderful, who identifies as both Catholic and Wiccan, which is, I mean, I had never thought about the overlap, but there is quite a bit, isn't there? I mean, oh. the, so much of the imagery and was interesting to think about. Yeah, I, I think that that sense, and it goes back to that idea of the magical and the mystical and the, mm-hmm. the signs, you know, that you... I mean, I still sort of am tempted to do I was joking today about how oh, we couldn't get the, the connection right. for the podcast it's, working and it's like, is it God? And I, yeah, Catholics do that. It's funny how quickly you go back to it, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's a sign. Oh, I, I had a, I felt something and there was a brush against my cheek or this happened right. because of this. And that's, that's very, I think that's very particularly Catholic and, you know, that we do, we are taught to see signs and you're told that, you know, it was all about signs. And I was terrified as a kid. I'm, I think every Catholic kid grapples with it at some point. I really thought for a time that I was going to have an archangel come and there was a danger that I could be carrying the second coming, you know, <laughs> like that I would be told you are with child. Or, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Yeah. Like, why wouldn't you? It's presented as a real story, so could happen to anyone. It could happen again, right? And yeah. you're reading it so often. And what would you do if it happened? Like, would you have said right. yes? <laughs> you had to. It's like <laughs> right. Is there much of a choice? I mean, yeah, yeah. It did make me laugh. This idea, right? I think I share your sentiment of oh, I just want my child to explore and to do. Mm you know, to follow their interests. But then when they choose an interest that triggers something in you or it conflicts with your worldview, it's that it's such a tension of wanting to be that that parent who's open. and Yeah, and, and how you, I mean, I think with Catholicism, for me, it was really hard. I mean, I had people in my family who were very, very um, hurt by the church in quite profound ways. Um, my brother, he suffered tremendous amount of bigotry from the church when he was, Uh, in his late teens from Catholic relatives and from the church and that there was, you know, all that homophobia. And for me as a woman thinking, oh, well, my ability to have some uh, reproductive autonomy is challenged by the church. And, you know, so all those bits that actually for me as a secular being and in, in society that I say, no, you know, I would always say to my daughter, you have a right to choose. You have a right to your, you don't need to have a baby. If you ever want to have a baby, you can use mm-hmm. contraception. You know, homophobia is just repugnant. But then right. when you look back at within church law, it will say, you know, uh, homosexual acts are intrinsically disordered. Like it says these really fundamentally, yeah, appalling things for, mm-hmm. for my beliefs. So how do you then with a child say that, particularly when they're very small? It was really hard. I couldn't sit it down and say, look, let's talk about all the badness and let's talk about child abuse and that and I think that's why with lapsed Catholics and you know that sense of I I think that in the last two decades and it's I think it's increasing that for people who were brought up Catholic that we it's no longer just about well how do you think back on their religion and beliefs and relatives and it's now become something about there are things that are really quite extreme and particularly with the abuse but not just that, what does that make us and and how do we process that now as people and and how do we, yeah, how do we walk around in the world knowing that we were, we participated in something and many, you know, people who still participate, good people who still participate and, 
you know, what's up, what's your ethical stance on that? Mm-hmm. You know, I think that is so important. And that's something that has come up a lot for me, right? Thinking yeah. about being a lapsed Catholic. But I love the point. I feel like in your book, you come back to a couple of times, almost like what is our, even as a lapsed Catholic, is it, is it just enough to say, well, I'm no longer Catholic, but, mm. or is there some kind of responsibility you have as a lapsed Catholic? Yeah. And I think that's so important. I really appreciate that framing. Yeah, I, I, I think you need to, what I really came around to, to seeing was that, that sense of walking away. So you can say, oh, just walk away and all that. But yeah, I don't think that's enough. And I, I think for me, it became very clear that what we all as former Catholics or lapsed Catholics or ex-Catholics need to do is, is actually own our relationship to the church. So if you do decide to continue participating, then that's that's okay if you know what you're doing and if you think about it. If you you know, and there, I suppose it's fantastic academic in Ireland, um, Hugh Turpin. Your book made me think I need to read him now because I was so fascinated by everything. He was like a eureka moment for me because I'd spent a lot of time researching this book and writing, and I was never quite sure where it was going to end because I thought, well, am I still going to get to the end of this book and say? I'm just not, I'm just angry or I'm going to talk about this, but where does that go? And so, yeah, Hugh Turpin did this fantastic study looking at people in Ireland, which is, of course, a very Catholic country, and asking them about their Catholicism. So if you ask someone generally, are you Catholic or not Catholic? A lot of, you know, Irish people, a lot of people like us would say, oh, yeah, I'm Catholic. He said, but if you prime them beforehand and you get them to write lists of what they associate with the Catholic Church, and so people would write things like abuse, authoritarianism, and they would think about these things about the church which have bothered them. Mm-hmm. And he was like, well, if you do that and then you ask them if they're Catholic, they're less likely to say they're Catholic. It's like they've examined their relationship. And and then he came up with this sort of um, two ways of understanding Catholics or former Catholics, you know, people who are no longer devout Catholics, who no longer believe all of it. And he said, you know, there's the ethic of harmony. And then he had the ethic of authenticity. And he said, well, you know, harmonious lapsed Catholics, they still participate and they do it because it's easier. It's easier to go to church, you know, to please your grandma. And it's easier to get your kids baptized because it, that's what you do. And you can send them to Catholic school and because, you know, it's down the road and it might give them a better education. And they're harmonious. They're just trying to keep the peace. And he said, but the ethic of authenticity, a lapsed Catholics, who say, actually, no, I'm not going to baptise my kids. I'm not going to try and do any of this to please grandma. And I am going to actually speak out about the things that bother me about the church because, you know, I was part of it. And that's an authentic way of being. He even said, and this is what I loved about his argument, was said in some ways the authentic former Catholics are in a way more Christian, like Christian Mm -hmm. missionaries of old because they're standing up for something that they believe in and they're willing to make, take risks because of what they believe in. And so when I had read his work and then I, I interviewed him and I thought, that's it. That's sort of what I'd been grappling with and I think most former Catholics grapple with mm-hmm. and that I came around thinking, okay, I can't tell people what to do or what to believe and everyone's relationship to their past and their church is their relationship. But for me, I thought, okay, I now count myself as an authentic mm-hmm. lapsed Catholic and so I have to speak out about it. And it was actually after I spoke to him, I, I talked to my daughter who was a little bit older than six, I think she was seven or eight or nine by that stage, so this book had evolved. I was able to say to her, look, this is why I feel this about the church and this is what the church did and this is part of your history. It's part of my history. It's part of your grandmother's history and that's now where we are. And, and yeah, and I think all of us today who are brought up Catholic have to somehow go on that 
journey of some form of journey to understand our relationship because of what the church has done. I think it's sort of become a bit more urgent than it would have been 50 years ago when we didn't know about a lot of things. Yeah, that framing was so helpful to me. It's putting words to something, right, that so many people are grappling with. That's what, and it did for me. I just, I mean, I'd, I'd done so much research and I really enjoyed writing the book and learning all this stuff, but I still felt near the end, I don't know what to do with this. And so to hear of Turpin's work and his study on former Catholics, it, you know, I thought, oh, okay, that's sort of the core of what a lot of us are grappling with. And I found it quite liberating in that I thought I can now argue my point without feeling mm-hmm. as, I mean, because I, the other thing I think when you brought up Catholic, and I don't know if this was your experience, but for me at least, it was always this sense that the Catholic idea was the right idea. And so that sense of lapsing even, it's like, I mean, lapsing means you're falling away. Right. But being able to flip that and say, actually, this is the way for me. And this is, you know, this is legitimate. And this is just as powerful as your Catholic way, rather than that sense of being patronized, particularly when you're younger and you stop going mm-hmm. to mass. Yeah, as if you're a lost lamb. So. Right, or an absence of something. Yes. Your book was really great to discover with our similar titles because I do see this conversation happening, particularly with younger people or young adults in sort of in the US. A lot of it is like evangelical Christian communities, which are sort of very far right. But I hadn't seen the conversation happening very much with Catholics. Or oftentimes I would see, even in in social media and things, there'd be a group for evangelicals and then you'd see a Catholic pop up now and again saying, some of this I don't relate to, but a lot of this resonates with me. It's a similar conversation, but it is different, I think. There are so many things about it that are unique when it comes to the Catholic Church. Absolutely. And I think, I mean, I think the general approach to religion and how we understand religion has become a lot more exciting in the academic world in in recent decades, because, you know, not having belief or not attending a church 50 years ago, you know, sociologists would consider you to have something a little bit wrong with you. And a lot of the literature, a lot of the really important literature around that time was always talking about atheists and, and people without belief or people who were disaffected from their churches there was something wrong, they were might be a bit, it's like they were delinquent. And, mm-hmm. you know, of course, yeah, that's just nonsensical. But in, in recent decades, the work's become a lot more sophisticated. And there's a lot of really exciting, you know, sociology of religion now that looks at the idea of, well, when people don't have theistic beliefs, when we don't attach ourselves to an institutional church or to one God, people still believe things. And so what are what is it that they believe and how is that dynamic and, and important to them? And, I mean, it seems sort of when you're on the other side of it, self-evident. Like I have, you know, I have an ethical framework and I have a way of seeing myself in the world and I am always trying to find meaning as much as anyone else. You know, I, I know I'm going to die one day and I want to have peace with that. And I think, mm-hmm. I mean, as an aside, I think for Catholics that's a bit harder because we are given this big prize when we're young that it will come. You will die. Don't worry. You know, grandma dies, you'll see her again. Right. Your budgie dies. Yeah. There's a budgie heaven. I mean, that's what my mother had told me. So even when my budgie died, I could always process everything as it will all be okay. Everything is has a reason. So, you know, of course, I, I think Catherine's grapple with that more, but that sense of what our beliefs are when we deconvert and when we walk away from something, I think there is, on the one hand, something that's very specifically Catholic about the way Catholics process it. But at the same time, yeah, evangelical deconversion and evangelicals walking away from their church, I think there's a lot of crossover. They're very different churches. 
they really hate Catholics. <laughs> so, yeah. like, and then you know, when I was researching this, I was getting this literature online just going, oh, my God, they hate Catholics. And that little Catholic in me would think, how dare you hate Catholics? Right. Like, yeah, we're right. We've got Jesus. <laughs> Isn't it funny how that creeps up? Even like yeah. Stephanie, I think described it as like Catholicism's like my little brother. Like I can beat up on him, but you can't. And that's exactly feels I, it just it comes up. You're like, yeah, I'm going to be the one saying the worst things about the Catholic Church until it's someone else, and then suddenly I'm like, am I defending the Catholic Church? And they're not Catholic, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I can do it with Catholics, and I find it yeah. And also, often sometimes I think because I, mean, I think when you're brought up Catholic too, you do have this sense of difference, and you know it, it does make you feel like that you're 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 in a different I mean I felt very much like I was in a different world and I I felt really sorry for people who weren't Catholic Mm. but I mean it gets complicated then when you look at child abuse and the church's response to it because then sometimes it's like okay gloves are off like it's just Mm -hmm. it's really hard to come around to that but yeah going back to the evangelical thing I think that is fascinating how much I mean, I know of a book that's coming out in Australia next year from a, a guy who was brought up in a very evangelical church and he's written about that. And there's a lot of examples of that. But, uh, yeah, once again, I think different as a Catholic. We are taught different things, even things as fundamental as the way we understand our bodies and particularly mm-hmm. as women and what's worthy and what's unworthy. And that idea of what, you know, Protestant understanding of the world versus a Catholic understanding, you know, I think Catholics, we see we have a different relationship to money. Um, we have a different relationship to charity. These things are actually programmed into us. And, of course, we all come out differently. I mean, for me, when it comes to money, like I can't go out for coffee or dinner with someone without trying to pay for them. And I'm, I'm sure that's a Catholic thing. It's like this <laughs> sort of my desire to get rid of all the money <laughs> that I have is quite profound. No, no, but so, oh, I think it's like this Catholic. Anyway, but we all have these quirks, but I think they do come from a different source. You write about unworthiness, right? This Mm. idea of particularly women in the Catholic Church learning this feeling of inherent unworthiness. And I was thinking about that because we just did an episode on Mary and we talked about humility. We talked about Mary being this archetype of humility. And I was trying to parse out. I said, like, actual humility is a good thing. Yes. Like when you actually stand for something, it's so important. And I think your book is like an exercise in humility of recognizing where you where you don't know something or where you learned something that you didn't know. Right. Versus I when you said unworthiness, I was like, I think that's the word I was looking for. I think when they say they're teaching us humility, I think the thing they actually end up teaching us growing up Catholic is this unworthiness and disgust, which is not useful. No, I mean, I think there's a self-loathing that you often mm-hmm. get, particularly, I think, particularly for girls, although even for boys. I mean, it was funny after the book came out, my brother, who's very much in the book, we were talking about it and I said, oh, so he chose as his confirmation name, Joseph. Mm-hmm. And I said, I was made to choose Mary as my confirmation name because my mum just told me. Um, I, I loved your confirmation name podcast. That was very funny because it oh. is. It's like it's such a, it's a one moment where you can choose. But my brother said, oh, Joseph. And I said, why did you choose Joseph? And he said, oh, because he was so invisible and unworthy. Like Joseph as a figure in the Catholic mm. Church was always like, oh, yeah, he was a cuckold, you know, and it was just, <laughs> it was like he was, he's just like, oh, well, poor Joseph, but that's his role to be nothing. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, my brother would have been like a 10-year-old and already thinking that oh. that is something to aspire to. And, but, yeah, and, and for women, I mean, in terms of our sexuality and our bodies, and I think Mary 
is very much the personification of that Catholic ideal of, you know, she's she's unsexed. She didn't feel pain in childbirth. You know, a lot of the apocryphal gospels, you know, the ones that didn't make it into the Bible or as canon are so funny when it comes to the birth is like where Salome mm. had put her hand into Mary and it after birth to check if she was still intact and it withered and burnt off and yeah it's just like oh my god I think I remember that from the book yeah but yeah but the whole kind of drive of this with Mary was that she was not a woman really I mean Mary is not a woman she is not how women experience themselves and there is no desire and that I was fascinated as a question when I was writing the book about, well, why Catholics, we have this reputation of being sort of obsessed with sex a bit and we're a bit like titillated by it. We're, mm-hmm. we're a bit like, oh, it's so naughty. But why is that? And if you go back and look at, you know, the development of Catholic theology around sex and sexuality, it's fascinating how much it is just completely obsessed with repressing desire. You know, and, and I think it, a lot of this I write in the book sort of starts with Augustine of Hippo, who's a great church thinker. And these were very brilliant people who spent their lifetime producing works, some of which is still, you know, holds up, but a lot of it was just absolutely trying to repress desire and figure mm-hmm. it out. And it's like, oh God, it's like they just, they just needed a good route. <laughs> 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 that's a that's an Australian term. I don't know if you use American. I think I I've understood yeah. from context. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, on that sort of on that note of the the titillating, something I really appreciated throughout your book was your use of footnotes and sort of some of the the juiciest or sort of the strangest or the things that you don't even know what to do with were those footnotes. Yeah, I'm curious sort of how that came to be. I'm glad you like them because they were a bit controversial. I think it was that sense that when I was writing the book, I would find these things and I think, oh, I need to write that. But I couldn't just include it all. You know, when it came to saints, for instance, like St. Catherine drinking the pus from a, can- a ladle, you know, to the cancerous sore of a woman she was tending and the woman was mean to her. So she had to drink, St. Catherine had to drink the pus in order to sort of degrade herself you read this and you go oh my god like this is real like this is real this is uh and but it didn't yeah in the narrative of the book I mean my book would have been massive and and so I tried to keep some of that because there were times where I just thought I've got to explain that and it was an interesting exercise because something say I think I've got a footnote on the stations of the cross because you know I would refer to things that we would all just you know you would know and I would know because we just their things right and then I think okay there's going to be readers who aren't necessarily as Catholic as me or or aren't Catholic at all and so I'm going to explain it and then I would break it down and say well this is what the stations of the cross is and it would be really funny it would be like writing a joke without meaning to (laughs) you think oh yeah right but this is not actually like this is what it is it just seems sort of a bit um a little bit ridiculous so yeah so the footnotes were that there was a lot of color in them but I just couldn't leave a lot of that material out because yeah it it really sang I mean it's it's amazing I have uh, my library I still have to pack it up so I finished this book it was released in Australia in April it's coming out in the UK I think next February and I I've got to move on I've got you know new projects I can't pack my books away because Mm. over the years I was researching it I would get a lot of really fantastic you know secondhand books about the church and memoirs and fascinating studies and they were so good and this idea now I have to box up my books as you do after you finish a book you 
box up your books and you put them away. But I've, I'm finding it really hard with this because there was just so much good material there and, and it could have just gone on forever. <laughs> I can imagine. I mean, there's 2,000 years of material, right? That's- <laughs> 2,000 years of material. And it's pretty, I mean, if I was young, I think, oh, I should have been a Bible scholar. But then I probably would have just been going, this is wild. But it is, it just, it is a really, I mean, it is, it is really fascinating. I mean, it's a history of Western civilization. It is so foundational yeah. and there's so many different ways you can go with it. And once you start asking questions, and I think as a Catholic, because if you're brought up with it, that's where it becomes fascinating because you think this was like my culture, but mm-hmm. we don't really see it as culture. Right. In our modern secular society, we see it as just a separate thing about God and worship. And it's like, no, but you're doing these rituals that are very old. And some of them aren't as old but we right. think they're very old. They and... all feel old. <laughs> we don't know. Yeah, and we're saying, we're using words, like the Nicene Creed, you know, you say these things, and the, oh, no, the Apostles' Creed, and, and you, you say these things, and people have been saying these things in various ways, you know, for millennia. It's just mm-hmm. like, wow. And how long How long did you work on the book? Ah, a long time. <laughs> from, <laughs> you don't from... have to include it if you don't want to, but I'm curious. So I started, I had a, I wrote a book, that was published in 2013 on pregnancy and um, mm. its aftermath. I had difficult pregnancy. So, and it was a sort of visceral fun book, but it was also a serious critique of birth. And at the time I was, I was going to write about class. And then I, I thought, oh, I had a friend who said to me, you really should think about writing a Catholic memoir. I was like, oh no. And then I, there was a trigger point really that I was in Rome and my daughter deciding she wanted to be Catholic. So that right. was about six Which is what your book opens with. Yeah. Yeah, and so when that happened and I had this terrible – she decided she wanted to be baptised, and so I'm in Rome and I nearly baptised her in the bath. And I was, I was like standing there with a cup of water thinking, because, you know, we can you can baptise. Emergency baptism, yeah. Emergency baptism, absolutely. <laughs> I, I, I interviewed a canon lawyer about that and it's A-OK. It's like those, I was at a book event recently, months ago before we had one of our many lockdowns in Melbourne and – I was saying, we'll baptise someone here. And then the person I was doing the event with, who's also a lapsed Catholic, was like, Monica, you are not meant to be making Catholics. So I was like, we had this power. But so she, when she decided she wanted to be Catholic, that was the moment when I nearly baptised her. I thought, okay, I've got to look into this. But it did take a long time. And, I, I mean, there was a few interrupts. My father was dying at the time. Right. Cancer, and so I was caring for him in a different city so I was having to travel back and forth and so the book took longer and I'm glad it did because I don't think I would have come around to where I did so I felt quite immersed in it for a long time and now yeah I feel like I need to go on some retreat where they anti-catholic retreat the opposite of a catholic retreat yeah I do everyone keeps sending me things for Christmas saying oh you get this it's so funny catholic and I'm like I don't want to to see any of that Please. Stephanie and I have talked about how we have become the person who people send Catholic things to, which is, I mean, we are still working on the podcast, so I guess it's useful. Sometimes we'll use it, but I can't imagine that book is published. Please don't send me more Catholic things. I'm sure they, I mean, I'm sure that you're like providing a service because we all want to kind of point to these things. And when it's not, when you can't do it with non, um, you know, non-Catholics or people who didn't experience this, right? I think I've, I've found it very interesting since the book was published. How many really lovely emails I've got from people mm. in a way that you know I, I write a column in Melbourne and you know a fortnightly column, and I often get mail from that, and that's really lovely. But the book mail has been people writing their stories and writing about 
you know, what resonated for them. And it has sort of been very affirming in the sense that I, I can see, and like your podcast, I can see just we do have this community. And I, I really felt, you know, with the book taking so long, a few times I thought, is it going to be too hard to do this book? Because it felt really hard as a project. But at the same time, I, I really believed in that sense of I think there are lots of people like me mm-hmm. out there in lots of different ways, but I, I think we are a very big community of people and I think there's a lot that hasn't been said and a lot that we're trying to process. And I just, I hadn't, you know, I think you find a lot of examples in pop culture of laughing at the church from, you know, and there's a lot of really funny stuff out there, but there's not as many investigations in what it is to be a lapsed Catholic. I mean, the Catholic Church has loved looking at lapsed Catholics in order to get them back. (laughs) But I think I said this in the book, but I felt this very strongly for years that I always feel like former Catholics are somehow like my kin. (laughs) You know, you do, you trust lapsed Catholics more. Yeah, or or you meet meet someone and you realise they're a lapsed Catholic and suddenly you have this bond right or this shared history even yeah even if they're from another country frankly or or from another part of the world oh absolutely and I think that I'm like well what is that that's so strange isn't it so well I think this book is much needed it doesn't surprise me that you're getting all these kinds of emails and responses because I think there are so many people who this is you know it's your it's your particular story it's also some excellent research that I really appreciated <laughs> um but it yeah I think it's so many people's stories right I think so and I think that story I mean that was one of the things in the book too about with church abuse I think that's all of our story as well you know that we Mm -hmm. are now Catholic now means for a lot of people you know pedophilia and a Catholic priest in what a Catholic priest is has changed tremendously in terms of how Mm -hmm. we see them in pop culture I mean if you put a Catholic priest in a tv show there's an immediate thought of is he a pedophile you know Mm -hmm. it's it's not I think I told that story in the book where a TV writer friend was working on a show and there was a, a guy, one of the actors was playing a Catholic priest and at lunchtime he would go in his costume, you know, with the little tie and just sit and eat his sandwich in the park near where the kids were playing and he said he could see visibly <laughs> parents would move their children away from him. Yeah. And I think that that's something that we're all feeling too. Yeah, I think that's real. I think even, you know, when around the time Stephanie and I started the podcast from the time we recorded our first episode to put it out, there was this huge story of it wasn't a new story but it was new that it was being talked about of residential schools yeah in Canada and the US of indigenous people and just the i mean the history of colonization that comes with catholicism is you know we yes. haven't even touched on that but really oh god yeah i mean talk about the thing that nobody is talking about when you're growing up catholic is just the the colonization oh the missions do you remember like we used to have send money to the missions and it was always like right. the missions and i'm like the missions. I, my, I, my dad worked in Papua New Guinea for years, and Australia, oh, wow. you know, it was like I had a big, big hand in Papua New Guinea, and up until the like the seventies. And it was funny how the Catholic side of my family, because they also had people up there, and it's just like you were just colonizers. And it was like mm-hmm. that they brought they brought Jesus, and you go, they messed, they messed everything up. You know, there was like this huge colonial project under the mm-hmm. you know under the, the guise of of religion and uh, I mean and in Australia too right yeah, so, yeah that's a whole that's a whole new a whole new. other book <laughs> <laughs> I'm not gonna write that book. <laughs> maybe um, you can <laughs> oh I, yeah, I don't know I don't someone will write that book um 
Yeah, yeah. I, I think so. just one of these many things as you talk about of things that you learn about in a certain way or even think about as an adult and then you just making the connection between something that you understood as a child and what you realize as an adult yeah my last question for you and I know you've touched on this my last question is over the process of creating the book (laughs) with the short version of sort of how you would characterize your the shift in your relationship to your Catholicism do you feel like there was a shift in in your own relationship to how you understood Catholicism for yourself Yeah, I do. I think it took away, I think until I started the book, even if for years I'm so angry at the church and I had all these very big statements, I think I was still very woo-woo about the church. Mm. Like I would, I would still pray. And I mean, I still, I now would still probably be driven to prayer, but I don't believe it. You know, Mm -hmm. I, I think there was always, I was still seeing a bit of the magical mystical in the world and researching the book sort of killed for me Mm. a lot of those residual unexamined beliefs about the other world I think I've become more of an atheist writing the book Mm -hmm. but also going back to that authentic and harmonious position I felt very much by the end of the book that I was equipped now to separate from the church in a way that I could see as something I could be proud of I guess or own and see as a positive thing I think I had been until I wrote the book and researched the book I had been seeing it as negative and I've been seeing my lapsation as sort of a a falling away but now I see it as uh, I chose something new Mm. and I think that that was quite yeah that feels good so yeah that's what happened it it, yeah and it and it made me more of an atheist I think that they say this a lot of that you know just read the bible or read read more about church and you you're more likely to become an atheist that's why they don't let us read the bible (laughs) it's best not to (laughs) I mean that sounds correct (laughs) I could talk for another hour but I, I won't for many reasons so thank you no you go start writing that book <laughs> no, right. oh I don't think I don't know that I could handle that all that time with colonialism and Catholicism that sounds intense it'd be brutal well thank you so much I really appreciate you taking this time thank you Anne I really enjoyed our conversation as, as a fellow lapsed Catholic <laughs> you know thank you so much That was my interview with Monica Ducks. So delightful to have her on the podcast. You can find Monica's book called Lapsed on Amazon. You can find more of Monica's work at monicaducks.com.au. Monica did have an organization she wanted to recommend for our virtual collection basket, and that is foodbank.org.au. Donate there. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And as always, also with you.